Did you write today? Yes. Then you're a writer today. It would be lovely, if being a writer were permanent state that we could attain to. It's not, or, if it is, the permanence comes posthumously. A page at a time, a day at a time, is the way we must live our writing lives. Credibility lies in the act of writing. That is, where the dignity is. That is where the final credits must come from. Credibility. Initiation tool. See readability is closely tied to our sense of personal worthiness. The tool that follows is an invaluable aid to personal self-worth and credibility. Both of those qualities can make it a little easier to move onto the page. Again, remember, that in order to do self-expression, we need to have a self to express. This tool aims at strengthening your sense of self. For this tool, you probably will need to set aside two blocks of writing time, each one and a half hours or a little longer. Some students, but not many, do manage this tool in one sitting. Most find they need a breather midway through. Retreat to a calm and quiet writing corner. You may want to light a candle, burn incense, and cue up some soothing music. Setting pen to page, number from 1 to 100. Go back through your life and list a full 100 things you are proud of. These do not need to be what you should be proud of or what other people may tell you you should be proud of. Some of what you're proud of may even be antisocial or even illegal. It's your list. Let yourself be particular and personal. For example, I'm proud of 1. Teaching Dominica to ride 2. Staging my musical Avalon 3. Telling off the 6th grade bully 4. Writing my three novellas 5. Growing my hair long 6. Reconnecting with Daniel 7. Working with Tim 8. Walking my dogs daily 9. Writing my dad often 10. Nurturing long-term friendships Think of this tool as a private resume. It will help point you in directions that have genuine meaning in your own value system. This tool is a potent defense against credibility attacks, as it reminds us firmly that our credibility is a spiritual, not material, issue. Place. I began my writing life in the upstairs corner bedroom of my parents' house. It was a small room. The dresser, desk, and bed were painted white. The curtains, gingham, were lilac and white checked. I write in a lilac room with white curtains today. In that gingham room I wrote my early poems and short stories dedicated to the intention of winning Peter Mundy's heart. My writing life moved after that down to the basement, my high school hangout. There was an upright piano, a poker table, a battered couch and chairs. In the basement half-light, I wrote high school journalism, poems, and more short stories. I wanted the attention of John Kane, and I got it. When I went to college, my writing life began to occupy a cranny high up in Georgetown Library under the nose of a Saturnine gargoyle, my critic incarnate. Poems, papers, and short stories unfurled beneath his baleful gaze. When my parents became ill, I went back to Libertyville, Illinois, to care for them, and my writing life moved into a billable phase, the basement, again, where I wrote early Rolling Stone pieces, and my brother Jamie's bedroom, where I pursued a diet of apples, cheddar cheese, and J&B scotch, while I wrote Morning, a very youthful novel. I used an old Olympia typewriter. Its body was the same trench coat tan as my current computer. When my parents recovered, my writing life and I moved back to Washington, D.C. Now I wrote in black and white speckled notebooks, in cafes, and parks, on a small schoolroom desk in front of a barred apartment window, on trains and in waiting rooms. 
my writing life, like my life itself, was becoming portable. I was hired as a mail sorter for the Washington Post and began writing there on long sheets of carboned paper rolled through heavy electric typewriters. My journalism career began. That career took me to hotel rooms around the country, where I wrote on yellow legal pads or rented typewriters and rigged them up to write on card tables near the window of whatever was passing as the view. Flying to and from assignments, I discovered the joy of writing on airplanes, getting down page after page, as we shot through a tunnel of time. For a while I carried a black leather blank sheet book and I sketched the locations in which I wrote. I seemed to be using the sketches like Polaroids, I was here doing this. I did not know then what I know now, that for me a sense of place is central to good writing. I am thinking back to high school. We have been assigned to read the Scarlet Letter. I find the book boring despite its adultery. I find particularly annoying the long passages about nightfall and burning sticks and the way the light fell or didn't fall against the moors. It is now 30 years later and what I remember of the Scarlet Letter is not Hester Prime's plight but those images of flickering firelight dancing on the moors. In the early 70s, during Watergate, I wrote for Rolling Stone. I remember Hunter Thompson saying to me, the secret to good writing, Julia, lies in taking good notes. I take great notes. Taking great notes is another way of saying place matters. When we place a piece of writing carefully and specifically, I am writing this on a sunny spring morning with sun streaming through a white lace curtain and a lilac bush blooming against the window, we create a context for what we are saying. We allow the reader to bring in a world of powerful associations and discriminations that makes the reader-writer dance far more intimate. The specificity of a writer's detail, the willingness to disclose detail, allows or bars intimacy. Place is the most pivotal fact of connection. We acknowledge this obliquely, when we say where are you at? If I tell you literally, where I am at, you will connect to a grounded sense of, where I am at. If I say, for example, that the walls to my writing room are pastel iris and that there are wreaths of dried flowers and Indian corn on the walls, you will know that I am a romantic and a lover of nature and so even my most hard-bitten prose passages will be colored by your accurate perception of my more tender side. If I tell you I keep an altar in my writing room, that the altar features two porcelain theater dolls that represent my daughter and myself, then you will know that no matter how hip my short stories may appear, they were written by someone who values family and is old-fashioned beneath her modernity. If I add that right next to my computer is a framed baby picture of my now 21-year-old daughter, you will begin to factor in that I am also somewhat sentimental and dash a variable offset perhaps, by the presence of a green lizard on my altar, the symbol of change. The accumulation of details, the willingness to be specific and precise, the willingness to place a piece of writing accurately in context m-all of these things make for writing that a reader can connect to. Perhaps more important than that, it makes for writing that the writer can connect to. Naming our experience accurately and intimately, we claim it as our own. It becomes our territory, somewhere we really were, someplace we have feelings about. Once we contact the flow of deeper feelings under the skein of details, we have a chance at writing that touches something deeper than the surface in us and in those who read. We are born in a certain time and a certain place, wrote Carl Jung regarding astrology, and like vintage wines we retain the flavor of our origins. The same may be said of a piece of writing. 
I began writing my novella Between Heaven and Earth in a hotel room in Boulder, Colorado. I had just separated from my creative partner, Tim Weeder, who was off for several months in Comunicano in the Australian bush. Write us something, where we can stay in character, he had said in leaving. I propped myself against the pillow in a vintage Victorian bedroom and, looking out the window at a week of snow, I began to write love letters between a husband and a wife. Weeder was in sunny and hot Australia. I placed the husband in sunny and hot Vietnam. I was in the chill, wintry landscape of the far western Great Plains, literally a half mile from the mountains, where the plains ended, and so I placed the wife in Kansas, where there were no mountains and after all, the snow was cutting off my view of them as well. Weeder had departed abruptly, leaving me in charge of a joint creative project. I gave the wife twin boys, approximately the same weight of responsibility that I felt overburdened trying to handle. I had trouble with managing the creative crew Weeder had left behind. I made the boys rambunctious and out of control without their father. The wife worries about her husband's proximity to Vietnamese brothels. The Boulderado Hotel, where I was writing, was itself an old frontier brothel. The wife had a stern, antisensual bedroom. It was directly taken from the room I was staying in myself. Bit by bit, detail by detail, event by event, I... Translated life, as I was living it m-sharing it and not sharing it m-into life between a husband and a wife. The dead wet leaves of Boulder became the dead wet leaves of a small Kansas town. The misery and loneliness of a creative project left half-finished became the misery and loneliness of a household left and husbanded. I could not change the facts of my life, but I could transform those facts into art and an art made much more artful by the inclusion of place. As I write this essay, the sunny spring morning has shifted and great gray clouds bulk overhead. Yesterday was for me a sunny day. I had a long and lovely conversation with a new and cherished friend. Today the distance between us hangs over my landscape like the clouds over Taos Valley. Last night at twilight we had an abrupt hailstorm. Today my lilacs are still blooming m-dash despite the odds. Fact, I, too, am blooming despite the odds. Fact, the long winter is over despite the hail. Fact, four songbirds are balancing on the feeder just outside the study window. Tails tipping in the wind, they ride the feeder like a swing. A shaft of sun breaks the clouds. They sing in a sunny place. Place. Initiation tool. W. Hen we write, we place ourselves in our world. We say, this is, where I am, right now, and this is, how I feel about that. Conversely, when we focus on the places, where we have been, we often connect to a deep and specific sense of, how we felt, when we were there. In other words, by mapping our literal, physical placements, we are often able to more accurately map our psychological placement. Good writers m-dash and good writing teachers m-dash know this. I am thinking specifically of the grounded, place-oriented writings and teachings of Natalie Goldberg. When I think of this tool, I always think of her, writing in cafes and encouraging her students to do the same. The tool that follows is one I prefer to do out. Set aside an hour's writing time and take yourself out of the house and off to a cafe, restaurant, library, or some other foreign place to work. First, set pen to page and list every single place you have ever lived. For some of you this will be only a few locales. For others, it will be a list of dozens. 
after you have listed any and all places, choose one that brings back particularly vivid memories. Writing in the first person, in the present tense, put yourself back into the place and time you lived there. For one half hour, allow yourself to write out the reality of this younger self. For example, I am 19 years old, a junior in college, and I am living alone on the top floor of a frame house on a D Avenue in the Bronx. The apartment has three rooms and a little living room, a bedroom, a kitchen, and a bathroom. The windows of this apartment have a large tree just outside. Squirrels scamper along the tree limbs and come close enough to stare in the windows and watch me, as I write. I am frightened, alone, and trying to be brave. I love it that, when my windows are open you can smell freshly baked Italian bread from the bakery half a block away. This is a powerful and emotional exercise that you may wish to return to repeatedly each time, choosing to place yourself in a different place. Writing work such as this, while sometimes deeply felt, yields us a sense of continuity and a profound connection to the sense of adventure in our own storyteller's story. Happiness. Why I know the picture, the writer, as a tormented soul, writing from angst, writing from pain, writing from alienation. Cigarette clenched in tight lips, shot glass just at the elbow, the writer is writing from anger, writing from outrage, writing from indignation. Writers do write for those reasons, but they write for many others. Not the least of these is joy. Jerusalem is walking in this world. This is a great happiness. The air is silk. There is milk in the looks that come from strangers. I could not be happier if I were bread and you could eat me. Joy is dangerous. It fills me with secrets. Yes hisses in my veins. The pains I take to hide myself are sheer, as glass. Surely this will pass em dash. The wind like kisses, the music in the soup, the group of trees laughing, as I say their names. It is all Hassanah. It is all prayer. Jerusalem is walking in this world. Jerusalem is walking in this world. When I wrote that poem, I was dizzy with happiness. I was midway through a book tour with composer Tim Weeder and he had suggested we make a poetry album together. We were crisscrossing America giving concerts and poetry readings, introducing my book The Vein of Gold and Weeder's album Heartland. Our work was being well received, our friendship was blossoming, and there was even time to visit with friends, as we toured. I loved Weeder's music, had wanted to tour with him for years, and I found the process of the dream come true sufficient to light my heart like a candle burning at both ends. I was astonished by the depth of my creative joy and, as I do with everything, I turned to the page, writing. The album idea was Weeder's solution to a joyous problem, we had to do something with the poems that were flowing out of me, sometimes as many as three a day. How shrewd of me, touring with a muse, I would joke. I am not the only writer who writes from sheer joy. My friend Natalie Goldberg remarks, the deepest secret in our heart of hearts is that we are writing, because we love the world. How many more books might get written, if we believed that writers could write out of love, out of glee, out of blissem dash or even out of simple fondness? What, if we wrote letters to the editor or to Congress to express our pleasure with the way some things were going? It is my belief that writing is a way to bless and to multiply our blessings. I cherish letters, postcards, faxes, notes, and even post-its from my friends. We are so skilled in the art of negative imagination, we are so adroit at the art of writing out of anxiety, what might our writing and our world look like?
if we allowed ourselves to inhabit our positive imagination, I am in the process of falling in love. It feels less like falling and more like rising up than I remember. Maybe, because I am older, twice divorced, a long time single, this new love catches me by surprise and finds me moving toward it not with the glee of a skater whizzing across a glassy pond but like a cautious shore dweller afraid to venture onto thin ice. And yet, the man I am starting to love is tall and kind and funny. He is an incredibly precise and whimsical writer who veers off into sudden flights of fancy. I am not used to whimsy in a man. I am mesmerized. I watch him like TV now what? I ask, catching some new shenanigans that are pure fun, pure folly. Now what? I am writing. Unprepared. I. I'm not prepared for this. I can't pronounce this bliss. The way we flow, the knowing where to go in dash this ebb and flow in dash can we take it slow? Where are the walls? The shadows in the halls? This light ebb dash can it be right? Where does it come from? I've known a different sun, walked a different earth, where air was used for grieving m dash I think m dash we are leaving. Second. Before we met I knew your face from stars and flowers. I knew your name from wine and grasses. Before we met, the red earth held my heart, the sky cradled my dreams, the forest floor was my green bed. These were one I Wednesday, before we met. Now that you are here I am Wednesday to galaxies. Our sky does not contain me. Our sun is a candle to what I see. Sheer as cliff, the walls drop away. Real life is persistent in its capacity to bring happiness. It is difficult, even on the most miserable of days, not to grudgingly notice something that speaks of an enjoyable world. I am thinking now of a day in the dead of winter, when I was living in Manhattan. I was suffering from a terrible cold. My daughter was suffering from a terrible cold. We were housebound, miserable, sniping at each other. Let's go for a little walk, I suggested. Why? Just let's. We bundled into a winter coats. We took extra wads of Kleenex. We made it out to the cold, crisp streets. On one corner, a West Highland Terrier bedeviled his owner by disappearing under the table, where a hat and scarf and glove salesman was hawking his wares. At the next corner, twin brown-eyed babies giggled excitedly over a silky spaniel who was just their height. We passed two British lovers squabbling pleasantly over what dreadful American movie to see. We stopped to admire some summer necklaces laid out in the chill December light. We passed a tiny, aged lady, linked to her toes, clinging to the arm of her taller daughter, a glacial blonde. If you think I'm going to take care of you, when you're a little old lady my daughter snarled playfully, drawing my own arm through hers. What was going on? We had started our walk so miserable, so solid in our misery, and here was happiness creeping in without any real encouragement, creeping in a step at a time, as we walked. Even Scrooge would notice. Just as walking arabicizes the physical body, producing a flow of endorphins and good feelings, writing seems to alter the chemical balance of the soul itself, restoring balance and equilibrium, when we are out of sorts, bringing clarity, a sense of right action, a feeling of purpose to a rudderless day. Furthermore, writing, when we are out of happiness can lead us into writing from happiness. We recall happier moments and we recall happiness itself. Writing is a form of cherishing. 
counting back over the tiny marvels of that wintry Manhattan day, seeing the sunny Caribbean sparkle of the jewels laid out on the sidewalk card table, I was struck by the exuberant optimism of vendors making their livelihood from the street stalls of Leather Lane in London to these in Manhattan. Look at this necklace. I just made it this morning, the vendor cajoled. He fingered a necklace the colors of a Caribbean vacation. He glowed with self-satisfaction over the beauty of his craft. He liked the series of choices M-Blue next to green, silver, not gold M-that led to his finished product. He reminded me of a writer, pleased by a well-polished paragraph. I just string words together, we writers say. We finger words like beads, choosing one over the other. Writing, like jewelry design, is a series of choices that lead to a sense of something made M-that something is sense. Sense brings to the writer choice and, with choice, a sense of at least the potential for happiness. Two variables seem essential for life to feel beneficent. One variable is stability. The other is change. Writing supplies a sense of both variables. Writing both gives continuity and creates a sense of continuity. Writing both gives change and creates an awareness of change. A writing life is therefore m-far from what our mythology around writing tells us m-very often a life with substantial happiness at its core. Writing to find my happiness, I find my happiness m-writing. Happiness. Initiation tool. Although our negative mythology around writing tells us that writers are often depressed and tormented creatures, the truth is that too much torment and too much depression can make it as difficult to write as to make the bed, wash the dishes, do the laundry. To the depressed person, writing may present itself as one more chore. For this reason, we are actually working on our writing when we directly address the larger issue of our happiness. Set aside one full hour. Draw yourself a hot bath. Add bubbles. Light a few candles, perhaps a stick of incense. Cue up some beloved music, get in the steamy bath, and simply soak. Let your thoughts float like bubbles. Let them slip and drift, then, gently and consciously turn to listing things that make you happy. Towel off. Race to the page. Number from 1 to 50. List 50 things that make you happy. 1. Motown 2. The Evening Star 3. God of a Chocolate 4. The Beatles 5. A Good Sunset 6. Horses 7. Naruto Poetry 8. Cinnamon Ice Cream 9. New York Pizza 10. Running 11. Etc. Happiness is not only a mood. It is a decision. Writing our list of 50 happinesses causes us to see how simple some forms of joy are, how we can make ourselves happy in simple ways m-read the Naruto poems, eat the ice cream, take time to check out the sunsets. Happiness lists are also an effective deterrent for situational depression. When the blues set in, the simple act of listing joys can help elicit some. Making it. Tee other afternoon, a young writer came over for homemade pie, a walk through the sagebrush, and a conversation about writing. Young, handsome, as dashing as F. Scott Fitzgerald in Tennis Whites, the young writer looked like Central Casting's idea of the young writer. He was excited. As we set off across the sage fields, dogs in tow, he told me he had two newly minted short stories, a small crisp article, and high hopes, except for one thing what were his odds of making it, as a writer? Joya, I'd love to write, to be a writer, but I'm afraid I have no talent. Or not enough talent anyway. What's enough talent? Don't worry about talent. Just write. Remember what director Martin Ritz said? No. 
I'm afraid I don't. Rit said, I don't have much respect for talent. It's what you do with it that counts point. Uh, how do you keep from getting buddy on these walks? You can't keep from getting buddy. Uh, the young writer's tennis whites were getting spattered around the edges. He was walking carefully, as incongruous as someone in dress whites on a battlefield. Around us the dogs leaped and whirled, slathered with mud, having the time of their lives. It is interesting to me that we ask a question about the writing life that we do not ask about other professions. For example, we do not say, what are your odds of making it as an investment banker? As an elementary school teacher? As a chemist? In those, and most professions, we assume that an interest in pursuing the career implies a probable proclivity for it and a reasonable chance for success. Not so with writing. The truth is, when you want a writing career and are willing to do the work to get it, the odds work with you, not against you. This is simple metaphysical law. As Gady advised us, whatever you think you can do or believe you can do, begin it m for action has magic grace. And power in it. I quoted Gady to the young writer. You make it sound so simple. It is simple. But don't you have to know the right people, that kind of thing? No. Really? Really? If you write and write well, the right people will eventually want to know you. So don't try to meet people. Try writing. That feels so m-practical. Doable. Harsh. Because it gives you back your power? Maybe. Because there's no one to blame but yourself? <laughs> don't sugarcoat it. In other words, in order to be a writer, try writing. That's my formula. It would be. The young writer was laughing. He could appreciate the irony of his tennis whites and the messy practical advice that I was giving him. The minute you start writing, your odds of being a writer start to run 100% more in your favor, you are already a writer. You're writing, aren't you? Yes, but m-but. But what about publishing? If you keep writing, you'll publish. If you keep focusing on publishing, you may not write. But what, if I write forever and I never publish? Hasn't happened yet. But it could. Every piece you write makes your being published more likely. Your solution to everything is just right. That's true. The young writer was annoyed. He could see that all roads were leading him straight back to his desk, where, sooner or later, he would just have to write. I'm scared to submit things, he finally said. Everybody's scared to submit things. The trick is to keep writing and submit while you're writing. Don't stop and wait for a response. Keep up your momentum. The word momentum hung between us. I could sympathize with the young writers wanting an outward sign, an aid to his momentum. Unlike him, I was certain it would come. His own commitment would trigger it. For 30 years now I have watched my own and others' commitments trigger positive opportunities in the world. I have even found a quote that accurately describes the phenomena I have observed. Mountain climber William Hutchinson Murray, who mounted expeditions against the odds had this to say about the whole question of odds, pro and con endeavors, concerning all acts of initiative or creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves to. Then providence moves to, that's the telling line. First we must commit, then the universe follows the direction pointed by our commitment. Over and over in my teaching life, 
I hear stories of synchronicity. I just finished the short story, when I went to a party and met this guy who was starting a literary magazine, or I just decided I would love writing about the arts. When I heard that the arts columnist at our local paper had moved back east, we commit, then the universe commits. We are the cause, the universe delivers the effect. We act internally and the universe acts externally. Again this is where so many of us fall into a false sense of powerlessness. If I were published, then I'd be a real writer, we tell ourselves. What are the odds of my being published? Your odds of being published become 100% the minute you are willing to self-publish. My book The Artist's Way, which has now sold well over a million books, began life as a self-published manuscript. So did my book, The Money Drunk. So did my short story collection, Popcorn. I am, perhaps, more stubborn than most or maybe more uppity or maybe just more convinced of the essential democracy of the arts. I believe that, if one of us cares enough to write something, someone else will care enough to read it. We are all in this together, I believe, and our writing and reading one another is a powerful comfort to us all. The universe is not, to my eye, a cruel and capricious place. I believe that our desire to write is a deep-seated human drive to communicate and that it is answered by an equally powerful human drive to be communicated to. In other words, for every writer there is a reader m or many readers. We had been trudging for some minutes in silence, while I thought about how good the young writer's odds were and he thought about exactly the opposite. Finally he spoke, but, Julia, how will I ever make any money as a writer? You'll write and get paid for it. You make it sound so simple. Think of it like making a chair. You make a chair and someone buys it. You write something and someone buys it. Making a chair is different from writing. Why? Don't make it any different. You're too practical. I can't afford to make writing a big deal. I like to do it too much and, besides, it is how I make my living. Anything else gets too tangled m dot you think? I think all the time and that's the problem. My afternoon's walk with my friend the young writer was turning out to be an afternoon of listening to the most common and persuasive blocks that writers in our culture endure. As we tramped on through the sagebrush, keeping one alert eye out for rattlers, the villainous hisses that sounded were instead those of our culture's beliefs about artists. Mark Bryan calls this the Edgar Allan Poe school of writing, live in torment and die broke in the gutter. Some people do, but that fact may have more to do with their untreated alcoholism than their writerly ambitions. Maybe it was the exercise. Maybe it was my undaunted optimism on his behalf, but the young writer was brightening just a little. You really think I could make a living as a writer? Writers get paid just like other people get paid. A piece of writing is a piece of work. People pay to have it done the same way they pay to have a dress made or an architectural drawing rendered. And in much the same way that an architect loves to draw and draws things, paid or not, and a seamstress loves to sew and may occasionally whip up a dress for sheer love, a writer is someone who first of all writes and secondly happens to be paid for it. Well, I haven't been paid for any writing yet. But you will. It's nice one of us is sure about that. It is a very American notion that being paid to do something makes us somehow more legitimate. We would actually do well to take a cue here from the world of sports and realize that, just as some of our best athletes are our amateurs, some of our most gifted writers may be too. They may never choose to go professional. But, Julia, 
I keep thinking how much it means to me to be actually published, the young writer said. We were headed home now, back toward blackberry pie, herbal tea for him, and strong coffee for me. Of course you want to be published, I said. So make a list of every place you can think of that may need writers and also commit to publishing yourself. Publishing myself? What's wrong with that? I guess I want someone else to say I'm a writer. Henry Miller self-published. Walt Whitman self-published. Yeah. But they're Henry Miller and Walt Whitman. They weren't yet. If we keep thinking about how nice it would be to be published by other people, we are leeching ourselves of power. Instead, we need to decide that we will, one, write no matter what and, two, share that writing no matter what. Instead of thinking in terms of traditional publication, it serves us to think of putting the work out into the world in as many formats and venues as suggest themselves. It is also true that the moment one commits to self-publishing, the work that is so valued seems to take on added values to other publishers as well. It's a little like the girl with a boyfriend seeming more desirable because of it, I'm afraid. I live in a small mountain town, Taos, New Mexico. Writers here hold readings. They get together in living rooms and small cafes and read to each other. They hold open mics and poetry slams. They run off copies of their stories at Copy Queen, our Xerox establishment, and they mail them out and hand them out. They post their writing on the web. Not coincidentally, Taos has spawned quite successful small presses, carrying the Just Do It, Just Print It philosophy one step further. But, Joya, my whole family thinks I am nuts. Now we were in the home stretch M dash and down to the brass tacks of why so many people find it hard to write. We do not believe we have the right to write. We believe that our life experience, overlapping, as it does with that of our families and intimates, is somehow not our material. Families typically display a certain understandable reticence in endorsing writing careers. For one thing, they sense quite accurately that they are part of our material and not necessarily a comfortable position. Secondly, families, despite their many flaws and foibles, do in all probability love us and they have listened to as much negative propaganda about the writing life as we have. Wanting us to succeed, they want us to pick something we can succeed at and m-here's the mythology again m-we are told that it's very tough in the writing game. What our mythology doesn't tell us is that there is joy in playing the game you like. Just as a swimmer should swim, because the water feels like home to him and a field hockey player should let himself run, because his legs like to run, writers need to write, because, put simply, it makes us happy. Writing feels good. Beat, Julia, writing, as a life seems so self-indulgent. My friend the young writer had himself in a double whammy. On the one hand, he believed that the odds are stacked against him and that the writing life was tough. On the other hand, he enjoyed writing and felt that constituted a good reason not to let himself do it. It was just too self-indulgent, too decadent. It strikes me as interesting that, if someone loved banking, he wouldn't chastise or castigate himself for choosing that life. If someone loved history and wanted a life as a history professor, that would be a socially acceptable choice, although it is, in fact, every bit as self-indulgent as doing anything else you love m-writing, for example. Then, too, there is this question what's wrong with being self-indulgent? Where m-and the answer is our Calvinist, Puritan heritage m-do we get the idea that doing what we like is somehow wrong? 
Often, doing what we like is somehow very right. I gave the young writer blackberry pie and herbal tea. He thanked me for the visit and headed back into town. I headed back to my desk, happy to practice and dash happier to practice than to preach. Making it. Initiation tool. T. His tool asks you to take a small step toward declaring yourself a writer. You will need to set aside an hour of writing time, preferably out rather than in. Go to a cafe, order a cup of tea, coffee, a soda or cappuccino. You will be writing two letters. The first letter is from your inner writer to you. The second letter is from you to your inner writer. Using this tool will give you a chance to air your fears and grievances. It will also give you a chance to offer reassurance and make plans. Your writer might want to go to open mic poetry evenings but needs the assurance that you'll allow some evenings of being just audience before calling on your writer to perform. Your writer may be worried about spelling and need the assurance you'll use a dictionary or your computer program's spell check. The grammar-phobic inner writer may need a promise that you'll purchase the elements of style for boning up. Your letter to your writer is a chance for your kindly adult self to be reassuring and practical. More than anything else, the part of us that writes needs support, reassurance, and encouragement. We can offer these ourselves. When we do, our writer responds by taking to the page more happily. The dialogue you are setting up. With this tool is another practice that can become a regular part of your writer's repertoire. Whenever you feel stuck or stymied, a check-in with your inner writer can often tell you why. Knowing the why, you can work on how to undo it. Honesty. T. His afternoon I received a manuscript in the mail. It was bulky, hands-eruxed, and compulsively readable. It was a love story, written in alternating voices by husband and wife team. He is Kenny Loggins. She is his wife, Julia. Their story is intensely romantic and is told in such intimate detail that I found myself reading and saying to myself, I am astounded that they have written this book. It is so, intimate. It is so, brave. It is so M-O, my god. They're talking about that. Because the book is intimate, because the book is brave, because the book is handmade M-journal entries, lyric scraps, regulation storytelling prose M-the book raises a number of interesting questions. Chief among them the idea that so many of us have that our lives, our personal stories, do not really matter and are not important enough to be the stuff of books. Kenny Loggins is a very gifted and famous songwriter, but he writes of publishing his book, Even though I have been a songwriter for 30 years, I've never been more proud of myself. This is one of those, why you were born moments, I am inclined to agree with him. The Loggins' book is personally risky, stuffed to the gills with autobiographical revelations and resolves. It is a dual self-portrait, not a particularly flattering one and an all the more lovable one because of its excruciating candor. Reading this book with its flat-out sincerity and heartfelt go-for-broke truth-telling, I find myself thinking, this is what writing is supposed to be about. This is the kind of risk that makes writing M-dash and reading M-dash appeal to me after all these years. Writing is about honesty. It is almost impossible to be honest and boring at the same time. Being honest may be many other things m-risky, scary, difficult, frightening, embarrassing, and hard to do m-but it is not boring. Whenever I am stuck in a piece of writing, I ask myself, am I failing to tell the truth? Is there something I am not saying, something I am afraid to say? When the answer is yes, the writing shows it. 
There is a softness, a tentativeness, a rot to it that telling the truth instantly dispels. Telling the truth. On the page, like telling the truth in a relationship, always takes you deeper. This week I got to watch myself in some very uncomfortable ways. A friend of mine sent me a fax that talked about real artists and the other kind. I found myself reacting with real rage, how dare this friend lecture me about real artists, and what was a real artist anyway? I fired off an indignant fax back. Underscore 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 you, my fax said. I hate all this pecking order. Point. That was true and dash as far as it went. Where it didn't go was far enough to leave me feeling clean. Overnight, I found myself with a lingering sense of personal malaise. Something was really bothering me. The something that was bothering me was the idea that in some people's eyes, and perhaps my friends, I might not be a real artist. This friend's opinion really mattered to me. Once I admitted that I currently just didn't feel hip and that it still mattered to me that I feel hip and seem hip, I was able to fax my friend. Sorry about overreacting, I wrote. It's just that I have had to learn to live a different artist's life than the terminally hip kind. I went on to explain about writing as a single mother, not being able to go on location, having to learn to fit in my writing between chores, being a writer and still showing up for the PDA, writing for Miami Vice, and, on the other hand, for Redbook. Writing that, I saw, that as much as I poo-pooed it, there was still some part of me that wanted to be hip, slick, cool, and totally glitched as an artist. There was a part of me that wanted back every camel straight I had ever smoked, every pair of tight jeans and ratty cowboy boots. A mother, a teacher, somebody who writes prayer books, I still carried a part of me that wanted to get my passport stamped groovy, and that was a stamp of approval I was evidently still not giving to myself. Now, none of this was welcome news to me. Blowing up at my friend made me feel foolish and dash and may have damaged our budding friendship. Admitting that appearances still mattered to me was humbling and not welcome news. On the other hand, I notice that this evening I am a little more comfortable with myself and a lot more comfortable with my writing. On the other hand, I am writing in a black lace shirt, black leather vest, and black silk pants, so maybe admitting to my racy side let it out of the bag a bit. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? That is probably the vow that writers should take, declaring ourselves as committed to honesty, as doctors are to healing. For writers m-for all of us m-honesty is healing, and one of the first things it heals is our prose problems. When we are telling the truth about how we feel and what we see, we find very precise language with which to do it. Words do not fail us. When we are disguising to ourselves and others the exact nature of what we thought or how we felt, our prose goes mushy along with our thinking. There are three adjectives where one would do, a few fluffy sentences, where a simple fact could well have sufficed. Honesty is not only the best policy in writing, it is the only policy that holds up over the long haul. Just as it is exhausting and destructive to lie in our personal lives, it is equally damaging to do it in our writing. And because we have an intimate relationship with our writing, it can become just as difficult to lie there as it is in a romantic partnership. There's something you're not telling me, a partner will often intuit when we are lying by omission. Writing says the same thing. When there is something we are not telling ourselves, our writing points that out. I was not comfortable blaming my friend for having riled me. I was, 
My writing pointed out, too easily riled. My friend may have been accidentally tactless, but I reacted like I'd sat on attack. There was something wrong with me and in me that my writing was right to point out. The age of computers and self-publishing brings us to a new and very interesting point. It is now cheap and possible to self-publish. We are no longer so dependent on publishers to shape and disseminate our work. For many years American publishing was dominated by New York and a New York aesthetic. I can remember having novels rejected with a note that read in New York, this novel feels somehow too romantic and easy. Of course, I remember thinking, all of you go to analysts, while the rest of the country makes do with trying to love each other. Whatever the rest of the country makes do with now, it is a time when regional publishing and small presses m-not to mention self-publishing m-offer an open door to work that is more personal in nature, perhaps more homespun, often more honest than writing as told to us by the experts. Just as there is no longer a single aesthetic that tells us what kind of book we should be writing, there is now a place to write the kinds of books we want to m-books like the one that Penny and Julia Loggins sent me today. Simply put, Loggins wrote me, this is our love story, as told through our journals, love letters, poetry, and lyrics. What reaches the reader through the back door are the teachings of conscious relationship. I have been a writer for 30 years and it still excites me when someone decides to claim the full power of writing and write about what they damn well choose as honestly as they possibly can. There is a vigor to such writing, an engaged and emotional timber that, like Willie Nelson's voice, convinces when something a bit more polished might fail. The Loggins' book is called The Unimaginable Life. It is committed to telling what they call the total unarguable truth. For me, it is exciting to read a book like that. It is even more exciting to think, if they can do it, so can I. So can a lot of us. It is one of the most frequent fears among would-be writers that they are simply not original enough. They forget that the root word in original is origin. We are the origin of our work. If that origin is mapped accurately enough, if we are honest enough to name what we find there, then our work is original. The Loggins' book is proof of this theorem. I have read more elegant books, but I have seldom encountered a more readable book, and that, for me, is where the matter really rests. The Unimaginable Life is a brave book. It pushes the envelope by talking about matters that are personal, private, and so utterly human that they are universal. I found myself responding, as I sometimes do to Erica John's work, my god. Now look what she's saying. I'm so glad somebody is. And I'm glad that it's her. The emotional courage of an artist counts for a lot with me. I can live with rough edges, with an occasional wince, as something cuts too close to the bone. What I do not want to live with is writing that is false, slick, or processed like the faux marble that is used to tone up nouveau riche hotels. There is something about the truth m-like something about a great plain pine table m-that has a beauty and clarity that shine for me beyond the frequent artifice of high art. Am I saying what I mean? Am I glossing anything over? Am I giving a pat answer instead of a truthful one? These are some of the questions we can ask to steer us toward honesty. Conversely, we can work backward. When our writing feels mushy, bloated, soft, we can know there is some dishonesty afoot. Then we can ask. What truth am I blurring? What am I afraid to simply say? What am I unwilling to face? I recently read a book about the spiritual journey which left me feeling profoundly uncomfortable. 
It was officially a spiritual book, but there was to the book a competitive, one-up edge that seemed completely out of place in spiritual matters. There was a categorizing and calibrating of spiritual experiences that made godliness a competition, not a compensation for life lived well in a difficult world. Unlike the Loggins' book M-which was full of pettiness but left me feeling inspired M-this book was full of holiness that left me feeling petty. There was something in the writing that I simply did not trust, a feeling that I was not being told the truth, the whole truth, or anything like the truth. There was a hollowness to the prose no matter how exalted the topic. This kind of dissonance, this sound of falseness, is what creeps into our writing, when we use it, as a place to hide something rather than reveal something. Writing is sheer M-dash like a silk scarf M-dash and the shape of our odd emotional furniture always shows beneath its drapes. This, to my eye, is part of the real reason people have writer's blocks. They do not want to know what they know and so they steer clear of the page and the clarity that it affords us. I haven't been writing, my friend Gloria tells me. Why not? Uh, well, I'm having trouble with Frankie. You thinking of leaving? I don't know. I don't want to know. Probably. Faced on the page, a difficult truth becomes a doorway. Where we are now becomes the stepping off point to where we are headed next. I've been tracking my pain for three months now. It's getting worse, not better. I'm going to have the cysts removed in December. In January, after I've rested, I'm leaving Frankie. The truth is not always pleasant, but the results of truth are a solid sense of self, a sane sense of possibility, and a companion to walk us from the life that we've got now into the life we would like better. For Penny Loggins and his wife, writing was the bridge from transitory and sad relationships to a deep, grounded, and joyful marriage. Both husband and wife took pen to page with the faith of a farmer tilling a rich but stony field. The work was not easy. The work was not fast, but the work was worth it. An honest day's work translated into an honest day's words. The book they crafted from their life and the life they crafted from their book wasn't imaginable to them when they began. The writing life may strike you as unimaginable. It may seem too hard, too daunting, too confrontational. Like the rocky field, it may look like too much work. But the rewards are solid. The gains are real. And on any given day, you need only do an honest day's words and the rest will follow. Honesty. Initiation tool. I call this tool the flashlight. Putting things in black and white gives us a flashlight to find our way through the gray. We begin by honestly asking questions. We answer, until we arrive at honest answers. The writing itself is the clue to, when we are on the right trail. When we are writing honestly, the writing heats up and we can feel that. When we get cold feet about the truth, our prose goes cold as well. Then we need to pry at the icy surface and see what we can dig up. We can try sentences like, if I let myself admit it, I... Point. If it weren't so risky, I'd point. If it didn't scare me, I point. If it weren't so stupid, I'd point. Under the surface, we find our conflicting feelings, the yes and no, the I love him, but point. Specificity of emotional honesty. We can trick ourselves by word games into self-disclosure, when we are stymied, what animal is he? What season is it? What kind of music? What food? Using language, there are a hundred different ways to excavate our buried truths, to arrive at our difficult knowings. If it weren't so threatening, I'd admit. 
Point. If I let myself know it, I feel. Point. If I let myself feel it, I should. Point. If I let myself entertain the thought, I should. Point. I'm not ready yet, but eventually I need to. Any of these gentle prods moves us closer to honesty. When we arrive at internal honesty, internal clarity, it becomes far easier to take external actions. It is a matter of breaking down actions into very small, doable increments. The page is an ideal place for lists, for brainstorming, for venting and inventing. Vulnerability. You are expensive, dear. Not like caviar. Like mistakes in surgery and dash an error by the anesthesiologist. A slip of the knife. The above is a fragment of an old poem, written to an old lover, about the very real danger I felt he put me in. It is a tough-minded little poem about the soft-hearted queasy-making vulnerability I was feeling. Writing it out, I stepped back to safety. Writing it out, I experienced my vulnerability and used it to find strength. Vulnerability in writing is the enemy of grandiosity. It is the enemy of pomposity. It is the enemy of posturing, the enemy of denial. Vulnerability in writing is health, and health M-dash, as I can assure you M-dash can be a scary feeling experience for some of us. Why do I feel bad instead of good, when I stand up for myself, my friend Martha sometimes teases me. Why does getting better feel so much worse? Writing well can make us feel temporarily worse, because we are breaking the code on ourself. We are shifting patterns we have outgrown. We are shape-shifting into a new form that feels strange to us in its fluidity. We tell ourselves stories about our lives. We believe, I am this kind of person, not that kind and then something happens, something jostles us, and we begin, uncomfortably, vulnerably, to wonder, maybe I am not so much this sort of person. Maybe I am a little more that sort of person. Pursuing this line of thought, like following the breadcrumbs into the forest, brings us to the clearing, where the hunters can spot us. Point. Point. Or brings us to the clearing, where the wizard appears. As we write, we are both describing and deciding the direction that our life is taking. As we become honest on the page about our likes and dislikes, our hopes and dreams, as we become willing to be clear, the murk of our life begins to settle and we see more deeply into our truth. Writing is a practice field. It teaches us how to do happy. It teaches us how to do brave. It teaches us how to do open, caring, loyal, resourceful, and, yes, vulnerable. If we can do it on the page, if we can let our imagination connect the dots, we begin to get a picture of ourselves as larger and more fully human than we may yet have managed. But, Julia, shouldn't we write just for the sake of writing? Does it have to be about human improvement? Writing doesn't have to be about human improvement, but it can be. Perhaps it simply is. It is my belief that we are as a species evolving toward something better, not worse, and that writing is one of the primary ways that we are doing it.